Hello, greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us, and we're so glad for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan, and I work for the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. As Christians, we believe in one God in three persons. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. And we were told about the Father, who is our creator throughout the Bible, specified in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. And that there's also the Word of God made flesh as the, as the Son, who is our Lord and Savior in John 1, 1, 14 and other passages. And in 2 Peter 1, verse 21, the Spirit. But of all of the members of the Godhead, it's this Holy Spirit that is the most overlooked and often misunderstood. A lot of people think he's some kind of energy or essence. Many seem to have very little room or place for the Holy Spirit in their theology, while others seem to have room for little other than the Holy Spirit in their theology. And so let's spend some time considering from Scripture, who is the Holy Spirit? What can we know of him based on what he's called? What is his connection within the Godhead? What is his relationship with the Father and the Son? What can we know about the work that he does? What role, if any, does he maintain in the life of a Christian? We first meet the Spirit at the very beginning of things. We know in the first verse of the Bible, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, in verse 2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Ruach Elohim in Hebrew. Ruach is a Hebrew word that means wind, breath, or spirit. In many passages, it just simply means the wind. We can see an example in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1, that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. That wind is a ruach. We also see that in Exodus 10, 13, and 19, other places. We also see ruach as a breath. We see that in many passages, 2 Samuel twenty-two sixteen, Job 12 and verse 10. And very importantly, in the 33rd Psalm, in verse 6, By the word of Yahweh the heavens were made, and by the breath, the ruach of his mouth, all of their host. And we can see in these images how it would be that spirit would be understood in terms of wind or breath. You think about wind or breath, they both involve the movement of air. Breathing is essential to life. That's how we continue to survive, getting oxygen to all of our tissues. And so, in, in an anthropomorphic sense, we see that God is breathing out his ruach. And therefore, he's breathing out his spirit. And so, we're told that God has breathed the breath of life into man. Uh, and so, in Genesis six seventeen seven fifteen, other passages, the idea of a spirit within a man as the ruach of life within him. And this is why we see ruach also referring to the soul or spirit of a man. Like in Genesis forty one eight forty five twenty seven and Exodus 6 and verse 9, and things like that. And it's really this concept of what's going on here that informs uh, how Jesus in John chapter 3 will speak of the Spirit in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The idea of the wind going everywhere, that's the same. I wind, Spirit, there's an association there. And so... We can understand the realm of the use of spirit as wind or breath. It's life-giving. It's ephemeral in this dimension. 
it, you can't hold on to it. It passes by. It's invisible, but it's still present. And that's no doubt what's behind Jesus' declaration that God is a pneuma in John 4.24. Pneuma being the Greek equivalent of ruach throughout the Old Testament. Now, it doesn't mean that God is not substantial or personal. But since God is transcendent, the only way he can manifest himself on earth is in a way that's invisible but present, as life-giving but as ephemeral in this dimension. And that's how God is a spirit, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are pneuma. And therefore, that's how we can understand some things about the Spirit. Because again, as we said, a lot of people look at the Spirit as some kind of essence energy or some kind of spiritual force. Now, we can understand that kind of thinking if we focus solely on this idea of spirit as breath or wind, and therefore an impersonal force like the wind. But we need to remember that the Spirit is called that for our benefit, based on the limited understanding we have about the spiritual realm. In other passages, he's not just called a spirit. In John sixteen seven, Jesus calls him the parakletos, the paraclete, the comforter or helper. Some people might want to make much of the fact that in Greek, pneuma is a neuter. It means it, it, is not a, it is a form that does not have either masculine or feminine gender. It just is a third uh, often used with an it. But parakletos is masculine, and its use here indicates a kind of personhood. Uh, the spirit is not merely a force or energy. In Romans eight twenty six and 27, as we will see, the spirit intercedes for the saints. The spirit can be grieved in Ephesians 4 and verse 30. And these things are something that cannot be true of, of, of an entity that doesn't have intelligence and personality. And so as it is with God the Father, so it is with God the Spirit. He has intelligence and personality. He may be spiritual in essence, but we should not conclude from that that he is just an it. Or a force, or a con- as a consequence of these things. And so the Holy Spirit is a person of the Godhead. And, and has personality and is and, and and things of that nature. And normally when we talk about him, we call him the Holy Spirit, or maybe from Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost is a King James Version translation of Numa's ghost. Ghost comes from Old English ghost, meaning spirit. Uh, but unfortunately these days when people think of ghosts, they kind of reduce it to some kind of caricature, like Casper the Friendly Ghost or something, and ghosts have become quite different from spirits. Uh, now, many have come to the impression that the name of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, that that's his name in Scripture. But that insistence can lead to confusion. Now, uh, the Spirit is often spoken of as the Holy Spirit, but we need to look at how that <coughs> is constructed in Greek to understand how it's put. Literally, to pneuma to hagion, uh, when you move the, the hagion, which is the adjective for holy, to the end there, and you add the um, article in again, it's really showing emphasis and characterization. So it literally would read more like, the spirit that is the Holy One. And Now there are times like in Matthew twenty nineteen where he is called Holy Spirit uh, in, in a construction like we're used to. But the frequent construction of the idea of the spirit as the spirit, the Holy One, goes a long way to explain why so many times the apostles and prophets just refer to him as the spirit. The spirit is characterized by holiness as a quality is not named the Holy Spirit. Holy is not his first name. Spirit is not his last name. He's the Spirit. And this way, we can understand some things about who he is based on just what we call him and what we understand about him. 
The Spirit is as the breath emanating from God, giving life like unto God himself, who is a spirit. But the Spirit is a person with personality and intelligence. And the Spirit is the Holy Spirit inasmuch as holiness is a defining quality of him. But interestingly, and it's kind of odd, if God is a spirit pneuma, yet we are told that God has the spirit pneuma. Is this a mere tautology? Is the just the way of talk is this talking about the spirit is a way of talking about God in general? If God is a spirit and the spirit is called that, wouldn't that just be evident, in other words? Does this mean though that when we talk about the spirit, it's just another way of saying God the Father? And while the Spirit is frequently called the Spirit of God, he is also declared as distinct from God the Father often in Scripture. Now, in theory, Spirit of God, that phrase, could either be the Spirit of God himself or the Spirit which God possesses. Yet, in practice, we can see in John 14, 16, and 17 that Jesus tells his disciples that the Father sends the Spirit. That's an important concept for our understanding in John fourteen sixteen and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or, nor knows him. You knows him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And this is consistent with the message we got at the beginning of the Gospel in John 1 and verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God, God the Father. God the Father is made known in character in Jesus, and his presence is manifest in the Spirit. So there is God the Father, and there is also the Spirit of God as someone who is distinct in a way. And so the Spirit, the Holy One, can also be called the Spirit of God, or even the Spirit of Christ. Not that these are the spirits which define the Father or Son, i.e., oh, this is the Spirit of God, this is God's Spirit, in the sense that this is who God is, or Jesus' soul, so to speak. No, that these are ways in which we hear that the Holy Spirit is, is possessed by the Father and the Son. We can see this uh, embodied in a few passages. In Acts chapter 16, uh, Luke says, beginning in verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. One could argue that, you know, there's two different spirits working there, but it's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus there, same action involved, much more consistent to see that they are, in fact, the same uh, person. In Romans 8, this becomes even a little bit clearer. In a passage that is contentious for various reasons, but when we follow the flow, we can understand this. Beginning in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So who dwells in you here? Oh, you could try to argue, well, God, the Son, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit dwell in you. But that would be going beyond what the text is really trying to suggest. It's just the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit of God. It's also the Spirit of Christ. And the, the presence of the, the Godhead uh, in us, as we're going to talk about later. We also see this in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 as well, where the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, are, are, are said to be the same thing. But if the Spirit is distinct from God the Father, how can we be confident that, in fact, the Spirit is God? 
Because when we think about a lot of the passages that talk about the Godhead generally, they focus on how both the Father and the Son are God. So John 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And John 14, 6 through 9, this idea that uh, that if you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. Uh, in John 17, 20 through 23, the great prayer, Father, you know, let them be one as we are one, that they may be in us and we in them. I and you, you and me, and they in us. Colossians 2, 9 and 10, that in Jesus dwells a fullness of Godhead bodily, Hebrews 1, 3, uh, that the Son is the embodied character of God. And in fact, there were some in history called the pneumatomachi, the spirit fighters who resisted the idea of the deity, the Holy Spirit. And uh, many resisted that and stood against them. And many groups to this day cast aspersions on the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And it has to be established that, yes, indeed, the Scriptures does not explicitly ever come out to say that the Spirit, God, but it's very difficult to resist that conclusion on the basis between uh, the association of them in so many passages. So, for instance, in Ezekiel 11.5 or 37.1, uh, Yahweh will speak through a person, it says, or be with a person, in the same way the Spirit of Yahweh is upon or speaking through that pe- person. Uh, one of our clearest demonstrations of this is in Second Peter. In Peter's second letter, in chapter 1 and verse 21, uh, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God was... God, they, these men spoke from God. They are carried along by the Holy Spirit. That The Holy Spirit is the means by which God was speaking through them. And a lot of times we'll see a New Testament writer will declare that the Spirit said something that in the original Old Testament is said by Yahweh. So Hebrews 10, 15 through 17, a quotation of Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, the Hebrew author says, well, the Holy Spirit said this, but Jeremiah says, this is the word of Yahweh. Um, Jesus will speak of the Spirit as proceeding from God the Father and able to act in ways well beyond anything revealed about the capacity of angel, any angel or created being in John 14 and 16. He will bring to mind that he will comfort. He can do all these things. The Spirit is intimately associated with God throughout Scripture. As we saw at the beginning, he's hovering above the waters at creation's beginning. When Jesus is baptized in Matthew 3, that his Spirit descends as a dove upon him. He's upon Jesus and Jesus' ministry in Luke 4 and verse 1. And we also do well to note how Peter begins his letter in verse 2. Uh, those who are elect in verse 1, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Likewise, the revelation in Revelation 1, 4, and 5 Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, a reference to the Father, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, the Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. In those passages, we have a type of Trinitarian greeting, and notice that the Spirit is placed between the Father and the Son. And there's the baptismal formula in Matthew 28, 19, where, where Jesus says to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so all of this evidence, which are mounting up, is sufficient to demonstrate with very full confidence that the Spirit not only proceeds from God the Father, but he's also God himself. And he's relationally one with the Father and Son, indeed a glorious and blessed trinity. So the Spirit has personality and intelligence, and he can be understood as a breath emanating from God, he proceeds from God, and he is God. But can we ascertain from Scripture exactly what the Spirit does? 
I believe we can. And in general, there's a trend in terms of the role and work of the Spirit. He serves at the behest of the Father. He reveals, he intercedes, and he sanctifies. So we see him, and and we understand him primarily often in terms of the revealer. He's the one who makes known the Word of God. And so we see this phrase all the time. The Word of Yahweh came to me saying, in the prophets, or saith Yahweh, in Amos 2.16, Ezekiel 6.1, and again many, many other passages. And this is something that is extremely consistent with the way the Hebrew author begins his letter in Hebrews uh, 1 and in verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God spoke to them. How did he speak with them? Through the Spirit. As we saw in 2 Peter 1 verse 21 that the prophets spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. And so the word of Yahweh is delivered through the Holy Spirit. Jesus would promise the apostles they would receive the Spirit, and in this way, he would speak through them. The Spirit would bring to remembrance all the things he had spoken, and the Spirit would declare through them the will of God in Christ. And we see this in Matthew 10, 19-20, John 14, 26. And uh, the whole passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about how this takes place, that all this has been revealed by the, the Spirit, that this, the message of the Gospel is something that you just wouldn't come up with on your own. Interestingly, in Luke, we've got this very interesting declaration in Luke chapter 4. That uh, after Jesus is baptized, in verse 1, that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, and when he returned from the Jordan, led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. And then in verse 14, that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country that Jesus himself worked and taught through the power of the Spirit, which seems very odd to us because, well, Jesus is God himself, isn't he? Why does he need the Holy Spirit to do that? This is deepened further when we consider the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Interestingly, each letter begins with this declaration, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In all of these things, it's Jesus speaking, but then he will go on to declare at the end of these letters that in each one of these cases, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So who's speaking? Is it Jesus, or is it the Spirit? And and we're getting the idea that, in fact, it's both. That perhaps even Jesus much, must use the intermediation of the Holy Spirit to communicate his message to the people. And so we can see from this, and throughout the Old and New Testaments, that God communicates to his people through the agency of the Spirit, and that way making known his word and his will. The Spirit also serves as an intercessor, praying for the people of God as we read about in Romans 8, beginning in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we are to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So there's these groanings that are going. These, again, something we only know by the revelation here. It's very... Difficult to have a full understanding of this, obviously, but there's this idea that, hey, we don't know what we should be praying for all the time. There's all kinds of things beyond our understanding for which we would need to pray. And so the Spirit helps out and makes those intercessions because the Spirit knows the hearts of God, heart of God. 
And so while the Spirit often acts in what we could call, grotesquely in many ways, subservient role, in it, uh, having proceeded from the Father and, and serving at the Father's will, we also here see that he can actively intercede for Christians according to that will of God. The Spirit also is a sanctifier, working to make believers holy. And that shouldn't surprise us, since the Holy Spirit, we call him, that holiness is a defining quality of the Spirit. In Romans 15 and verse 16, Paul says that Gentile believers are sanctified by the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, that believers are washed, sanctified, and justified in Christ and in the Spirit. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 13, Paul is quite explicit about this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and in verse 13, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. As we saw from 1 Peter 1 and verse 2, the idea that we are uh, elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now this makes sense, because the qualities of righteousness in Galatians 5, for instance, are considered the fruit of the Spirit. And in Romans 8, Christians are to walk by that Spirit. And so, it would make sense that he would have a role in, in sanctification. So what can we say about the role in the work of the Spirit? Yes, without a doubt, the Spirit is fully God, one in essence, nature, will, and purpose with the Father and the Son. The Spirit maintains his own personality, as surely as the Father and the Son do. He intercedes for people. He works for their sanctification. But what's very interesting to note is that throughout Scripture, no one makes direct appeals to the Spirit. The Spirit of God is with people, we're told. But all praise, honor, and glory go to God, and the people of God will make petitions to the Father in the name of the Son. Now, there are occasional appeals, like in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, where a Christian will appeal to Lord Jesus himself, but we never see any such thing done to the Spirit. So the Spirit is God, but he proceeds from the Father in the name of the Son. He serves he does his thing. He strives for the people of God, but he seems content to maintain that role of the servant. So we have seen that the Spirit is God, he proceeds from the Father, and he's serving. So what's the relationship between the Spirit and the Christian? Well, the New Testament testifies abundantly to the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. That in Acts 2 and verse 38, God gives the gift of the Spirit to those who believe and are baptized, just as had been prophesied by the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2. In Hebrews 6 and verse 4, the Hebrew author says that believers are made partakers of the Holy Spirit. In 1 John 4 and verse 13, that God gives us of his Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 5, 5 and Ephesians 1, 13, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is the earnest or down payment of salvation. And it's important in both those passages, it's the Spirit himself that is considered uh, that earnest or, salva- or down payment. Uh, of course, the controversial thing is the idea of the, the Spirit as dwelling in believers. And yet we can see that this statement is said emphatically as true without contradiction. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says in verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You there, All those are plural talking about the church uh, collectively, but also in chapter 6, in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Some of those Jews remain plural. The idea of the fact that uh, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within us uh, is something that is true distributively 
as well. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 14, Paul also speaks of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So what do we make of all of these? Well, in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 and 10, indeed, there are certain gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, prophecy, and revelation of spiritual knowledge that are said to will pass away, and that they indeed passed away at the end of the first century. But the promise of the presence of the Spirit has not gone away, and it should not be relegated to irrelevance. The New Covenant features a major shift away from this idea of a physical temple in Jerusalem or somewhere with a Shekinah, the presence of God there, to the outpouring of the Spirit on all believers. As we see in Joel 2, fulfilled in Acts 2, and of course what Jesus says in John about the fact you're not going to go to a mountain, that God is the Spirit and you will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so believers, individually and collectively, are now temples of God with the spiritual presence of God manifest by the Spirit. We see this imagery also in Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2, and of course so clearly as we saw in 1 Corinthians 3 and 6. The hope of the new covenant is, in fact, in God's giving of his Spirit to his people in some measure, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 5 and Ephesians 1. There's a lot that's going to be mysterious about the role and work of the Holy Spirit, how he dwells within and among Christians. But we do well to uphold that God has made known about this Holy Spirit as he has made it known. And so we've considered who the Holy Spirit is according to the Scriptures, that he is a person with intelligence, personality, and agency, that he proceeds from the Father in the name of the Son, but he is God himself. He is in relational unity with the Father and the Son. He is the Spirit, the Holy One, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. He works as the Father has sent him. He reveals the Word of God. He intercedes for the saints. He sanctifies them. And the Holy Spirit is given to believers as a down payment of salvation, dwelling in them by the will of God in Christ. And therefore we do well to heed what the Spirit has made known, to follow God in Christ, be sanctified in the Spirit, and in no way quench Him. And we're so glad that you've joined us. We hope that you've been encouraged by our conversation. If you'd like to talk some more about various issues of the Holy Spirit, you'd like to explore other topics, if you'd like to have a Bible study, receive a correspondence course, if we can pray for you, if there's any way we can serve you, please let us know. You can find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We can also be found on many forms of social media as Venice Church of Christ. And if you'd like to contact me personally, I encourage you to visit me at my website, DeVerboVitae.com, www.deverbovitae.com. If this lesson has benefited, we encourage you to please share it on social media, let other people know about it. And uh, we pray that all will be done to the glory of God. Thank you very much. Have a great day.